All right. Well, we are continuing our study appearances. And in the appearance-driven culture that we live in, there's no shortage of filters that are available to us. And of course, I don't mean the, uh, the medical filters, which are in a shortage right now, thanks to the, the coronavirus. So I don't know if you've been stockpiling on those from, from Costco, but uh, they're few and far between these days. Uh, but of course, I'm talking about the social media filters that were started by Snapchat and then Instagram brought them over to their platform. And then now even Facebook, I'm told, has uh, filters uh, on their social stories feature because eventually baby boomers need to have everything like the rest of us. Um, but, you know, I don't know why Twitter gets included in the list because that's, that's one, one sacred space on the Internet where these have yet to uh, find a, a home. But I, I did come across this news article about a, a, a reporter named Justin Hinton. This is him. Um, he was, you, you saw this, he was uh, streaming a, a weather update on site through Facebook Live, but there was a certain thing that he didn't realize was turned on on his phone in the in the process. And I'll just give you a quick glimpse of uh, what that ended up looking like. This is a live broadcast. It was very really gentle, kind of across the region. You know, Governor Cooper had put out a badger or a cat or a raccoon. With the snowfall, because it really is the entire state. So, some of the people might know folks who live in West North Carolina, we are familiar with the snow and how to drive. Oh, yeah, don't fall on us. This being really the first um, significant snow that we've had to, to be safe if you do have to go somewhere on the roads and make sure you're giving yourself plenty of the first. This uh, thing right there, that's kind of new. I haven't, I haven't used one of those before. Um, anyway, you get the point here. Um, filters are all around us. But there, there's, a, there's a version of this that we're in danger of doing with God as well. There are certain filters that we have for God that we pick up from the culture around us. I mean, these are learned behaviors, right? I don't know who the first person was to have like some stupid looking mousy face and actually put, put that out there in public. But there was a brave soul and then the rest of us followed the trend after that. Well, you, you pick up on these things and we pick up on ways of seeing life from the culture around us and ways of seeing God. And so uh, one, uh, I like to think about the, the positive God filter. I've used the heart eyes emoji uh, for this one. Girls, you're always hoping that somebody will at least post one of these in the comments after one of your pictures. Uh, but, but he's just, you know, he's just in love with anything and everything about you. He wants you to have your way. He's there for emotional support whenever you need it. When nobody else likes your posts, he's right there on the scene affirming you no matter what they say. Uh, then you've got kind of the, you know, the, the magic eight ball predictor uh, filter version of God, that God is there for the major life decisions that we face. And so, you know, it, what, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to study? Where am I going to go to college? Who am I going to marry? You know, he's the one that you, you, you pull out and, and try to get an answer back on some of those things, even if he's stored safely away 
uh, for the ordinary places of life. And then there's kind of the, you know, which character are you version of God if you're in the Harry Potter universe or which Disney character. And people do that with the religious landscape as well. Whatever your religious perspective is, God can be that way for you. You know, we're all just kind of worshiping the same God in our own personal way. Uh, That's one filter that people have for God. Uh, Then there's the uh, celebrity lookalike filter. It just happens to be that the celebrity God looks like is you. You know, God believes all the things that you happen to believe. He supports all the things that you support. He's against all of the things that that you happen to be against, and he would definitely find your parents to be unreasonable as well, right? Uh, These are different ways that, you know, they're caricatures, but they are instincts that we can develop over time, and certainly that the culture around us presents about the Lord of glory, but, but there are some surprising things to discover about God. He is not like our filters, and Israel is going to come face to face with that in our passage. If you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel is in a situation where idolatry is surrounding them, Right? They, are, they are one little nation among many nations, many nations that serve their own conceptions of gods and religious systems and sacrifices and ways of doing life and society and the pressures that are outside of them. And then they have their own little belief systems that they've formed and their own little superstitions that are inside of them as well. So there are bad thoughts about God surrounding them and that are in them. And the reality that we'll discover here is that you, you can sincerely think that you're following God. You can, you can be doing whatever it is that works for you when it comes to spiritual life and yet be tragically wrong. And the Israelites and the Philistines are both going to be tragically wrong and maybe our own ideas about God need to be adjusted. And and tonight, our passage is gonna introduce us to three ways that God is not like we think. All right, so first, God's sovereign independence. Let's read this story. Chapter four, verse one. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli 
Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Right, so Israel finds themselves in a situation of trouble. The, the battle is not going as they expected. They thought they were going to once again trounce the Philistines like they had in the past. And yet they're just experiencing one retreat after another, one comrade falling to the sword, witnessing defeat in front of them. And they raise this, this question. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines today? That, that is an insightful question. That is the question to ask, right? They, they have enough right theology to know this is not an accident. This is not just some cosmic thing that happened to play out this way. This wasn't just that our guys didn't get enough sleep last night or that the Philistines have been drinking their energy drinks, right? God is behind this. He is the ultimate cause behind what happens in the course of history and in our lives personally. What is God up to? Why would God be allowing us to experience this? It's the exact question to ask. And yet they don't have any patience to actually answer it. They don't try to adjust anything about themselves. And an answer would be available, right? Look at that detail. We might have read over it quickly. In verse 1, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And you find out at the end of chapter 3 that everybody from, from Dan to Beersheba, which is like saying everybody from New York to Seattle, right, coast to coast, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet from the Lord. God has a microphone in Israel. He is available on loudspeaker. Go ask him. Don't you want to know? Maybe something about us needs repentance, needs change, needs to be conformed to what God's will is. Wouldn't you want to know that? But instead, they devise their own scheme, right? This is a bit like trying to respond to the difficulties of life with your Bible closed and your phone open instead, Right? You, you, you put your hope in some object, in some thing. And so, you know, life's got you freaking out in some way or you're depressed or you're upset with the people around you or how things have played out. It's not gone the way that you've expected and God is right there available for conversation. Godly counsel is available for you to pursue. There, there are people, there are parents, there are pastors, there are, there are wise friends that God's placed in your life and yet you can kind of retreat to your own device and your own streaming and your own binge watching of YouTube videos, whatever it is that you think is gonna help you get through the day instead. Right, what do you look to for comfort and for confidence? when the day doesn't play out the way you hoped. And what Israel turns to seems like a good candidate at first. They, they pull out the Ark of the Covenant, 
Right? To us, that just sounds like some fancy piece of furniture that we kind of, if you've been to the Tabernacle VBS at some point in your life, you've seen it. So you've been taught well, at least there. You know what it looks like. You ha- you ha- Everybody can call it to mind, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't grab a slide with Ark of the Covenant because I didn't want anybody to die this morning by looking on it. We'll see that happens later. Um, so just for your own safety, uh, you'll just have to call it to mind in your, in, in your own mind's eye. Um, but the ark represented something. The, the ark represented several things about God. In fact, those are the way that God's described. In verse 4, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. And so the ark was, was God's throne, so to speak. It, it, was, it was a symbol, it was a statement that in the, in the center of God's people is a Lord who reigns, who is in charge. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, the revelation of God's will for life, of, of how we are to walk faithfully before him, of how we are to, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. The Ark of the Covenant reminded God's people that he was a God who speaks. He's revealed his will for life. It's not something that we have to figure out by some puzzling method. He's made it publicly known. And it was also a reminder that he was a God who forgives. Because that throne was also called the mercy seat. And blood was shed there to make atonement for the sins of the people year after year. But all of that was pointing to a God who does those things, a God who speaks, a God who is available, a God who is forgiving toward us in our weaknesses and our sins, a God who is in charge of his people. But it seems like Israel just cares about the furniture right now. They just want some magic furniture to come join them in battle. Notice the problem here. Notice the dissonance. Lord of hosts, who's enthroned on the cherubim, the God of glory, and right next to this ark, two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, that if you were paying attention last time, you know these are bad news. Bad dudes, right? You cue the ominous music when their names get, get mentioned. And so without any intention of them changing their lives, changing their hearts, repenting of how they've mistreated people, of how they have made this charade of the sacrificial system, of how they have dishonored God's name, they think they can force God to act by bringing in the ark. They, they treat it like it's some cosmic rabbit's foot like God will answer to their superstitions. They are trying to pressure God for help because certainly if the ark is in the camp, he won't allow them to lose. Now you gotta help us, God, because we've got your special furniture here that you care so much about. That's the attitude that's in their hearts. Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this. He says, we prefer religious magic 
to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. Right, if, if I could tell you that I, I, could, I could give you a few prayers to pray, or I could give you a few Bible verses to read, and you wouldn't ever have to discover why you do the things that you do, Repent of the attitudes that are in your heart. Go and make it right before God and before other people. But I would just get your life to calm down a little bit. Was that what you'd want? Because sometimes, even when we look like we're going to God, that's what we're after. And it's just magic and manipulation. Right, all, all magic involves a, a form of that. Let me give you a quick example. You probably didn't know I was about to do this. But I need one volunteer. Raina, come forward. You're right there on the front row. All right, I'm going to do a quick shuffle of these cards right here. And I want you to give me a number between 5 and 10. 7. You want to change it? No. You sure you want 7? Yeah. All right, here's what you're going to do. You are going to count out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven cards like that. And what that seventh card is, you're going to show them okay. and not show me. You think you can handle that? No. Okay. <laughs> do your best. Oh, okay. It's all riding on you. Here you go. Don't show me. You showed them? All right. You put it back in the deck. Good deal. All right. Your card was an ace of diamonds, wasn't it? I don't know what that means, but yellow. It was not. It was this card, wasn't it? Yes. So how did I do that? Uh, I just manipulated you, right? I, I acted like I was sincere. I acted like I was your friend, but I wasn't. I was a con artist and a cheat, and I, I forced that. It's called the card force. I forced you to take that card in order to get the result that I wanted all along. And Israel thinks they're doing that with God right here. We have just forced a play, and this is going to be glorious in the results and in the end game. But listen, God will not be used by us. The last thing God ever intends to be in your life is merely useful. For, for many people, God's there for a moment of need, right? We run into trouble in life. That's when we start looking to him for help. And often he graciously provides it because he's a God of mercy and he loves us. But he is the Lord and he doesn't intend to just help us with our self-determined plans, right? He is not Alexa there for whatever we ask, he will not be manipulated by us. He is the sovereign. And then notice how their, their plan plays out. So chapter four, verse five. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. 
And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Not exactly what they were expecting to be the result of that little magic trick, was it? But notice what happens here. What would the conclusion of the Philistines be in this moment? In fact, what might the conclusion of Israelites be? Yahweh has lost. I mean, can you imagine the post-victory party that the Philistines are having now? Our gods finally did it. We beat the gods that actually brought all the plagues on Egypt and and parted the Red Sea and brought these people through the wilderness. Finally, it's, it's, it's about time. It's about time we got some recognition, right? It looks like God is a loser and a conquered deity. And he's brought into their temple before their little personal god named Dagon to live out the rest of his life there. End of story. Or so it seems. Why would God do this? Why would God allow this to happen? This is striking. If you read any other like religious literature, sometimes people have the ideas that, you know, in the ancient world, people were just writing about religious stuff and the Bible's one of those texts and you have all these other ones and they're all basically the same and they present all the same kinds of ideas about God. There's no God like this God anywhere in the universe and he is, cannot be contained by this universe. But this is not found anywhere in any other ancient writing. A God who allows himself to lose and to suffer shame. But God would rather suffer shame than leave us comfortably in our sin. This is the humility of God. As you, if you keep reading in, in that account, right, several things happen, but one of them is there's, there's a baby that's born on that day, on this tragic day, and it, it gets the lovely name Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, right? The glory days are gone for us. If you're looking for baby names, that's one you could add to the list. Uh, Ichabod, you know, everybody thinks of the Headless Horseman story when you hear that name now. Uh, The glory is gone, right? God's glory in this moment is hidden, is veiled, Looks like it's not much of anything. Looks like it has suffered defeat. What does this make you think of? A God who will humble himself. 
A God who will suffer shame because he is not content to leave us in our condition of sin. And this ought to make you think of the cross. It's the clearest demonstration of God's character, the incarnation, God becoming one of us, God condescending so low and suffering such a terrible death in our place. I love this quote from Donald MacLeod. He writes, every day of the Lord's life, he renewed the decision which had made him nothing, choosing to move further and further into the shame and pain it involved. In becoming incarnate, God not only accommodates himself to human weakness, he buries his glory under veil after veil, so that it is impossible for flesh and blood to recognize him. As he hangs on the cross, bleeding, battered, powerless, and forsaken, the last thing he looks like is God. Indeed, he scarcely looks human. He looks like nothing but a hell-bound, hell-deserving derelict. In the moment of crucifixion for Jesus, it appears that the glory has departed. But things are not what they seem because it's the very means for God rescuing us from our stubbornness and from our stupidity and from our hard hardness and from our resistance to him and from our contentment to live life on our own terms and chasing after our own little desires. This is the consistent character of God. These themes show up, right? 1,500 years before Jesus was born, written in manuscripts by the time that he arrived on the scene were already buried in caves and could never be altered, right? So I don't know if you realize that about, about the Bible and how it's put together. I mean, Jesus fulfilled prophecies that were already written down and, and, and buried in the sand in various places on the earth uh, long before he was ever born. The, the consistency from Genesis to Revelation of the presentation of how we are saved, of a God humbling himself to become one of us and suffer the sentencing that we deserve to bring us back to himself. I love the way that a, a Facebook friend of mine named Rebecca Reynolds has put this. I, I think this is really helpful. Just stay with me on this one, and if it serves you, it's very insightful, and if you get lost, I'm sorry. I've read a lot of books in my lifetime. This sort of narrative unity is difficult for a single fiction writer sitting in a coffee shop over a span of a couple of years. It simply doesn't happen with multiple writers, with multiple books over the span of hundreds of years, especially at the cost of real lives. My atheist friends get all grumpy about the Old Testament, picking out little bits and pieces that offend their modern ethics. I get that. Some of those sections bother me too. 
But what those folks regularly miss is this. In multiple books of the Old Testament, documented by carbon dating to have been written long before Christ, we see all sorts of predictions and foreshadowings that are completed in creative, fascinating, nuanced ways in the New Testament. Religious charlatans or fools might be able to bend an old text to pull off one or two tricks. However, those sorts of folks can't pull off historically verified, transcentury connections with consistent emotional resonance, clarity that only emerges post-completion or comprehensive narrative unity. In other words, from, from beginning to end, Genesis through Revelation is telling us about one God, one redemptive story, one answer for the human need in ways that no human author could have put down and come up with. You want want to be convinced that the Bible is the word of God? Read it with patience and its glory and its beauty will leap off of the page. And then go read some of the other things and see what you experience there, right? Well, God seems to have lost here, but look what happens next. Chapter five, verse one, it's time to show who's boss. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon was considered to be the father of Baal. And so if you know some of the other Old Testament stories, there's this this God called Baal, who's the thunder God, who's always causing trouble because Israelites are tempted to go after Baal. And it's like, hey, you know, maybe we want to date Baal today and become friends with him. And, and maybe he'll give us nice treats if we do that. And that was just this constant temptation right, throughout their history because we're so unwavering when it comes to our commitments to the Lord. But what's interesting is that the, the Philistines got this god Dagon. That, 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 that wasn't, wasn't even one of their gods. They just borrowed him when they moved into the region because they weren't always there in, in Canaan. They, they moved in and they're like, okay, let's, who are people worshiping over here? What's trending these days, you know, 1000 BC in the worship systems over here? Um, and, and, and they just ad- adopted some of the religious viewpoints of the, the West Semites, the people that were around them, and added that on, right? So, you know, we, we have lived, for many years, our, our nation has, has un- been under the broad Christian influence. It's not been a, a Christian nation, but, but it's been influenced by a, a broadly Judeo-Christian understanding of God, understanding of morality, understanding of, of life, and that's been shifting significantly in, in your lifetime. It began before your lifetime, but that's all you've known now. For many of you, 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 you're, we live in, a, in a, what's called a pluralistic world. There's just a lot of other ideas out there, a lot of other options that you're just, you're just aware, you, 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 can, you can kind of feel that too. It's like, you know, I've grown up in the church, my family does the Christian thing, but I got friends that they, they're not all about this, right? And you, you certainly are connected to a global world that presents other viewpoints as well. But, it's a, but human nature, 
something stands out about human nature here is what for one generation they are so sold on and, and have fallen in love with and are convinced to, to, to see as the right way, they've just borrowed that from a previous generation making that up. I mean, that's what literally has happened here, right? So we're all serving Dagon because that's, that's what's in these days. But just a matter of, of centuries before, in, in this, uh, just generations before among this people group, they didn't even know who this dude was. And now they're all jazzed up about it. So don't get too caught up in, in the, the shift, shifting fads and trends and ideas of what it means to be on the right side of history. There's nobody who can be predicting that right now. Do you know how fast these things are changing all around you? And if you try to follow after it, you will be flailing around in the wind. Anchor yourself in truth. But notice what happens here. Verse three. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took him and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward, right? So, so he's literally, the statue is falling on his face before the ark of the covenant, prostrate in this, this position of worship, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the, the trunk, the midsection, was left to him. Right? They, 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 they don't get the clue the first night. They just think, oh, Dagon's fallen over. Oops, sorry, this is a little embarrassing for Dagon. Let's help him out. Right, uh, right there, that should clue you in. A God who needs to be propped up and helped to his feet is not a God. But can I just tell you, there are a lot of things outside of the Lord that we are tempted to put our trust in that we have to prop up and we have to manage and we always have to argue and make a case and convince other people how it's worthwhile for our time. A God who needs to be propped up is not worth the effort. But, but notice how different this account is from how our, our culture today would tell the story, right? If, if this were the 2020 version of it, you know, Dagon and Yahweh would be buds by now. They would have already come out with their own version of the coexist bumper sticker. They would have been coming up with ways to decrease carbon emissions while they shared avocado toast, right? And that would have been the end of the story. But in this account, Dagon loses his head and his hands and he's on the floor on his face before the only true sovereign because God, he's not some little territorial deity. He doesn't only have power inside of Israel. He owns the globe. He owns the universe and he will always demonstrate in the end that he is in charge and he will reign in glory. There is no one like our God. Do you see that? Do you feel it? All right, third, God's severe holiness. We looked at God's sovereign independence, his humble glory, his severe holiness. Verse six, chapter five, the hand of the Lord was 
heavy, it was severe against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So he has made his presence known to them and he's letting them know it's not gonna be a comfortable experience for you to think that you can control what's happening here. And this comical tale of them them moving the Ark of the Covenant to another city and everybody there is breaking out in tumors there. They move it to another city over here and everybody over there is breaking out in tumors and they finally realize, okay, we have a problem on our hands. What are we gonna do about this? And so here's the clever trick that they come up with. Let's take, uh, there were five different cities and so we're gonna make five golden tumors I don't know if y'all want to do that as an art project later and come up with your best efforts. That's great. And five rats, because those were also showing up. You know, some scholars are wondering if what God sent was rats with the bubonic plague, and that's what caused people to break out. I mean, the passage doesn't say all the specifics of, of that. And, and we're going to put it on a cart with the Ark of the Covenant as, an, as a peace offering to God. Maybe he likes gold, mice, and tumors. I don't know. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to strap two milking cows to this that have never borne a yoke. Now, if you were paying attention a couple of Sundays ago, you should all know what a yoke is now, right? Not talking about what's inside of an egg. This is what goes over the shoulders of, of uh, cattle that is trying to tread grain, right? So they've never worn one of these, and so instantly they would bucket, they would try to get it off, they're not gonna cooperate. You know, the cattle being yoked together, they have to learn how to walk with each other and cooperate with one another. But they've never worn one of these, and they're milking cows, and so their their little calves are gonna be back home crying, mommy, mommy, I'm hungry, come to me, help me, right? Uh, but we're gonna see what happens when we put it out of the road. And the, and the two milking cows that had never worn a, that yoke before walked straight down the road all the way to Israel. And God made it crystal clear, yep, that's who you were messing with, in case the boils didn't already make it evident. But what I love about that story is in all these scenes where people are trying to manipulate God and figure him out and take care of him and help out what's gonna happen and get him to act a certain way, he does this 100% by himself. Leads the cattle all the way home and restores his presence to his people. But there is a severity here that we need to have a category for. And it's not just the Philistines breaking out with severe pimples. Look at this, chapter 6, verse 19. The ark comes back and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? 
The Ark of the Covenant was supposed to always be covered when it wasn't within the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. But these people get it back and they are flippant with it and they're like, oh, I've never seen one of these before. Let's take off the cover. Let's stare. Let's, let's check it out. You could translate either they looked on or they looked in it. They, you know, they wanted to see are the Ten Commandments still there. Whatever they were after, they had this flippant, casual approach to coming into the presence of a holy God and God says, all right, that was your last breath right there. Do you have a God who is big enough and pure enough that these events make sense. There's a similar story later in 2 Samuel that we won't come to in our study, but many of you probably know about it. You know, it's one that unsettled me a little bit growing up. David's getting the Ark of the Covenant back and it's being brought on a cart rather than being borne on the shoulders like it's supposed to be. And they're coming through this passage and it tilts and it looks like it's about to hit the mud. And this one dude named Uzzah puts out his hands to steady it and help it, to prop it up. And that was the last thought he ever had at that moment. God strikes him dead. I remember the first time I heard what I felt truly explained this. as from a quote from the late R.C. Sproul, his book, The Holiness of God. And he said, Uzzah presumed that his hands were cleaner than the mud. Right? Mud is just dirt and water obeying God. We are stained with sin. Do you have a God who is large enough, glorious enough, and holy enough where that makes sense? Doesn't mean that it's not troubling. In fact, it ought to be. And at the same time, glorious. And everybody's okay with not wanting to be associated with the, with the people that we think you know, aren't right in the moral categories that matter to us. You know, so they had the latest iteration of the trial of Harvey Weinstein recently. And uh, everybody's okay with canceling that dude. Get him out. You know, whatever you need to do to punish him, to penalize him, to, to, to remove, I don't want to see him Right? I don't want to be associated with him in any way, anybody who had former relationships. It's like we, we get it on the human level. There are certain people that cross certain lines, and yet we never give to God the respect that might not he want to be associated with our sin, with our impurity, with our selfishness, with the ways that we hurt and harm others, with how we belittle him any chance we get, might there be an appropriate separation between a holy God and contact with sinful people. But there's a paradox here because they ask this question 
right? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? We got to get him away. Which is true and false all at the same time. When Jesus performs the miracle of uh, causing there to be a, a sudden great catch of fish when he's calling the disciples. You know, he tells Simon Peter, go, go ahead and throw your net on the other side. And he, you know, Peter does his grumbling, you know, we've done this all night, I'm the professional fisherman here out here, why don't you just stick to teaching and doing stuff you know how to do. Sounds like Pete sometimes to us, you know, just stick to preaching and let me get stuff done. Um, right, that, that, that's, that's the approach here. He throws the net, it's flooded with fish, they can barely take it in, and he realizes this is the one who controls all of nature. And you know what he says? Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And that's where the gospel begins. We have no right to see the appearance of God, to look on his face, to be in his presence without a covering. That ark needed a covering and we do as well. We need to be hidden in the the cleft of the rock of Christ in order for God to pass before us and us to be able to look on him and live. But the gospel is just gonna be a boring story if you don't have a big God. And the other things that we believe as Christians will make so little sense to you. I think John Piper puts it very helpfully. He says, Where God is small and man is big, hell will be abhorrent, indeed absurd, and the cross will be foolishness. If you think a lot about humanity and our potential and how great we are, and you don't have large thoughts about God, then you're going to have no category for hell at all, and the cross is going to be 100% unnecessary. And sometimes people eventually walk away from the Christian faith because they can't handle those doctrines that no longer make sense to them, no longer feel plausible to them because for so long they've allowed God to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink in significance in their life and in reality. If we think that God is basically like us and that we're pretty decent. Well, we won't get this. But that's why we're helped. That's why God reveals and God speaks. And as Patrice read, God's thoughts are not like our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, but we get to see him in his word. Even when he's not like we think, he surprises us. He's not someone we can control. He is the sovereign with authority over everything and yet he is willing to be shamed and look like a loser and go all the way into death in order that we can be in the presence of this Holy One. That's the God we worship. Would we 
worship you, God? Would that be the response, Lord? Wonder, awe, amazement. There's never been anyone like you. You are worthy. There's never been anyone like you, God. We believe that. Thank you for giving us more content to understand that. In Jesus' name, amen.